Hey, what's up, guys? It's John Michaels. It's time for another A-Town Stomp podcast. A lot of stuff to dive right into today as we've had a huge week in the world of Atlanta sports. First of all, we had live Atlanta sports back. Team sports was back as Atlanta United has had a couple of matches, and we'll dive into what Atlanta United has not done down in Orlando, and I have a feeling it is going to be a short stay for the five stripes. They're going to need some miracles to happen now to advance to the knockout stage of the MLS's back tournament. It's been really, really disappointing to watch what they've done or what they haven't done so far in these two matches coming back. They don't look like the Atlanta United team that we've come to know and love throughout all of this time. Falcons all-decade defensive team was announced. Um, I'll be honest, I was a voter on the all-decade team, which was pretty cool to do. Matt Haley and group sent me a text a couple of weeks ago, um, sent me a link and asked me if I would like to vote for the all-decade team, and absolutely, I wanted to vote for the all-decade team. I thought it was pretty cool, and there's a lot telling about the all-decade team right now with the Falcons. It's telling as to who's on there and why defensively, quite frankly, they have not been as good over the past decade as they probably would have liked to been. So we'll spend some time talking about that. Our own West Blankenship sat down with Hudson Mason, and they were breaking down JT Daniels and Jamie Newman as the potential starting quarterback for the University of Georgia. If you've missed it on Tackler Media, again, tacklermedia.com, go ahead and subscribe. Our, our links are always emailed to you daily. This podcast, Jason's articles, Wes's, Wes's articles, Wes's podcast, the video link, the Backport Sports, it's all in one at tacklermedia.com. Make sure you give us a follow. Follow on social media as well. Same thing, Tackler Media on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. We are always there. We'll spend some time talking about that, breaking down who's a better fit in Todd Munkin's offense. Hell, will we even have a season at this point uh, as there's a lot of conversation there. Also, Braves, they'll be back literally uh, tomorrow, a week from tomorrow. They were gonna, they're going to start Major League Baseball, which is huge. Actual games that are going to count. They've been doing scrimmages, inter-squad scrimmages. The big story throughout the week, Kristen Pache obviously hurt grade one slash two sprain. Looks like he's going to be fine. Braves are close to being ready to open. Yasiel Puig is in the mix. So all of that's to come here in the next uh, 20 minutes or so on the podcast. But let's dive right into the Falcons all-decade team. Like I mentioned, I was able to vote on this. And I find it very interesting um, because, you know, it's a bunch of different media members and I think a lot of uh, different folks got opportunities that have been around the team to to vote on the all-decade team. So let's run down who's on the all-decade team. First of all, your defensive ends, John Abraham, Vic Beasley. Abe is a no doubt about her. We knew John Abraham, best pass rusher in a long time in Atlanta, was going to be on this mix. We wish he would have gotten an extra year or two with the Dirty Birds. He wasn't. Vic Beasley's an enigma. Um, when you go down and look, and I'm almost positive I voted for Adrian Claiborne over Vic Beasley, and I get it. Vic had the better numbers sack-wise, but I thought Adrian Claiborne was a more consistent player and a guy that you'd rather have on your roster than Vic Beasley. I get it. 2016, Vic Beasley, 15 and a half sacks, leads the NFL. A year ago, he ends up with, with eight and a half or nine and a half sacks as he gets really close to having Mike Bell getting a tattoo on his tuchus, uh, which would have been funny as hell if that would have happened. I was actually rooting for Vic Beasley to do that. But Beasley's a guy that I think was hated more than loved. And when I saw that he was the one that ended up at defensive end, I kind of cringed and said, man, that lets you know how crappy the pass rush has been for Atlanta throughout these years. The fact that Vic Beasley, 
who was basically let go after his fifth-year option, is your all-decade defensive end. D-tackled, no shock, Grady Jarrett, who's been a monster after coming out of Clemson, gets the long-term extension, deserves every piece of it. He is a great defensive tackle. And Jonathan Babineau, as West Durham like to call him, the SS Babineau, cutting through the waters, loved Babs, great ambassador for this football team, worked his ass off year in and year out. And he's the type of guy, not a star by any stretch. I think he's a fringe pro bowler at best, but Babs was the consummate professional while he was here. Deion Jones, Curtis Lofton, Sean Weatherspoon end up being your linebackers. And if you want to talk again, Enigma, just listen to that group. Deion Jones, Curtis Lofton, Sean Weatherspoon. Lofton, a guy who never should have been let go, I think it was after the 12 season, they decided to move on from Curtis Lofton. He wasn't a great cover guy, but in the middle was a flat-out thumper in the run game. Loved Curtis, uh, always very generous with his time with the media. But again, only here for like four years of the decade. Sean Weatherspoon, another dude. And I love Spoon. Spoon's torn both his Achilles. You know, he's fought through injuries his entire career. For me, Spoon's always going to be the guy of what could have been. Because I think if Spoon's all the way healthy, he is a pro bowler. You know, probably two out of every three years, sideline to sideline, played with an attitude, played with an edge, just a great dude. But again, what could have been? Deion Jones, we all know what Debo's done in in the four years that he's been a member of the Falcons. Unfortunately, when he was out in 2018, it was kind of the domino that that just let the defense down. But so you think about that for a second. We have not had a long-term linebacker here. And and if I'm not mistaken, I may have voted for Devondre Campbell. I may have had Debo, Devondre, and Sean Webb. Spoon. Uh, Curtis Lofton obviously would have gotten some consideration, but I think I had uh, Devondre in there just because Devondre's been so steady in the four years that he was here in Atlanta. But you think about that for a second. Those four backers, none of them played the entire decade. None of them were truly superstars. They all had star-like moments, but they weren't true superstars. Then you go to the defensive backfield. Desmond Trufant, Robert Alford. No surprise because they were starters in the secondary for years. I get it. They weren't always the best. Desmond Trufant, a guy that I I think many folks looked at and said overpaid, shouldn't be paid as the number one corner, all of that different stuff. But again, Des was the consummate professional here year in and year out. Rocky Alford actually had a couple of really good years. The Super Bowl season, I thought Rob played great. And then he got really grabby and handsy and everything else. But again, when you're a starting corner for a team for like seven of the 10 years of the decade, you're going to make it. The flex player was Brent Grimes, and I love Grimer. Got to know him really well in his time here. Um, If he doesn't hurt his Achilles in 2012, Brent probably sticks around a few more years. I think it was 2012 he hurt his Achilles in Kansas City. He sticks around for more years and probably is your starter, and maybe you don't go out and draft some other defensive backs, and he doesn't go to Miami and everywhere else. Safety, uh, Ricardo Allen, great story. Obviously a guy that started as a corner and then kind of worked his way into being a safety, ended up being one of the one of the uh, solid pieces in the back end of this defense. Love Rico, all, again, always generous with his time and has done a great job playing safety. And William Moe, uh, William Moore, we call him Willie Moe or, or the Missouri Hammer, whatever you wanted to call him. He's another guy that injury just took away 
probably some of the best football that William Moore was able to play. I'll never forget a tackle he makes against the Rams where he just, I think it was Steven Jackson, where he just uncorks on Steven Jackson. And Keanu Neal's a guy that is built much like William Moore, uh, probably even a little bit bigger than Willie Moe, and a thumper down in the box. But again, this is a guy that's had his uh, seasons wrecked by injury. So when you look at that team, that's a solid group of all-decade-type players. Solid. But it's not a great group of all-decade-type players. That's the problem that we've had on this defense for a long time. A lot of good players, not a lot of great players. Like, if you really think about it, who have been the difference makers for this football team uh, over this time? You, you could argue John Abraham's been a difference maker, really, really good. You could argue that for one year, Vic Beasley was. Maybe for two years, Sean Weatherspoon was. Maybe two years, Deion Jones. Maybe a year or two out of William Moore, a year or two out of Keanu Neal. But none of the like, I'm really grasping for superstar players. Then I go through and I look. Falcons last year. 23rd uh, defensively, 24.9 points a game. You go back to 2018. This is a football team that was 25th, giving up 26.4 points a game. 2017, team was actually really good defensively. They were 8th, 19.7 points a game, and obviously make it to the NFC Divisional round and come up a couple of yards short. You go back to 2016, people remember, oh, they were great. No, 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 they were good down the stretch, but they were actually 27th in the league, giving up 25 points a game. Go back to 2015, Dan Quinn's first year here. They sat at 14th, actually a pretty good defense at 21.6 points a game. They just weren't really good in Kyle Shanahan's offense. Smitty's last year, 27th in defense, 26.1 points a game. Smitty's second to last year, 27th in defense, 27.7 points again. 2012, oh, lo and behold, the defense is good. They give up 18.7 points a game and go to the NFC Championship game. They were fifth that year defensively. The year before that, 18th, 21.9 points a game. They do go to the playoffs in 2011. And then in 2010, lo and behold, another 13-3 and year. They were 18 points a game, fifth in the NFL. So they had three years in the decade where they were a top-five defense. Three. You want to know why this team's been down more often than not? It's the defensive side of the ball. And I think when you really dissect the all-decade team, and I'm not crapping on these guys that made the team, because, again, a lot of them were good on the fringe of being great or even had some great years. Atlanta just has not had enough difference makers defensively to win consistently. Think about it. The Ravens forever have been really good defensively. The Steelers are usually really good defensively. The Patriots, it's easier because you've had Tom Brady, but Bill Belichick's always had a pretty damn good defense. Carolina right up the road. They've been really stingy for a long time defensively. New Orleans, as they've gotten better, and I hate to give those grab-ass team any, any credit, but as they've gotten better, it wasn't that the offense got better. It was the fact that simply the defense got better for New Orleans. So if the Falcons want to get back to being a playoff and a Super Bowl contender, think about it. Three of the years that they had great seasons this decade, 13-3 and three in 2010, 13-3 and three in 2011, both of those top seven defenses. Super Bowl year different. You, you had one of the greatest offenses ever in the NFL. It's why you made the Super Bowl. And in 17, when your offense was really pedestrian, you had another top 10 defense, and that's how you made it deep into the playoffs. It's no secret that the correlation between Atlanta being really good as a football team 
team is defensively. Offense is there. Defensively, it hasn't been there. Now, speaking of offense not being there, Atlanta United, uh, apparently when they packed up from Atlanta and decided to travel down to Orlando for the MLS's back cup, uh, they left the offense back in Marietta where they have their training at. I asked our buddy Mike Conti today, what does Atlanta United need to do to advance? And it's funny what he had to say. He said, pray, but we'll know better after the game against Columbus and New York Red Bulls. They obviously lose 1-0 to New York over the weekend. Uh, Boring match. Atlanta United never really seemed to have the opportunities they wanted. Obviously missed Joseph Martinez. A lot of people question Frank DeBoer with the lineup choices that he went with. Then today you go against FC Cincinnati, a team you figure, hey, pretty easy. They're going to go out and win, you know, 2-0, be right in the driver's seat to make the the, the advancement here, and then they lose 1-0. They get red carded, and they basically play a man down for about the last 60 minutes of the match and were really just unable to do anything. They basically bunkered down and said, look, we're going to do whatever the hell we can to to try not to give up a goal and get out of here with a draw, and it hasn't happened. Here's something that's very disconcerting if you're Atlanta United. 305 consecutive match minutes plus stoppage time without a goal. 305. You're talking about one of the most electric teams the last two years in soccer has just flat out not been good. Now, part of it, you lose to Club America a long time ago in Mexico City back in March, back before sports got shut down. You're not really mad at that. That team's probably better than you in CONCACAF. New York Red Bulls, I, I'm not even mad that you lose 1-0 there. I, I'm cool with that at that point because you figure against Cincinnati and Columbus you're going to win. To have what happened today where you get red carded, you have a guy uh, thrown off the field, you play a man down, you had to completely change your strategy. But here's what's bad now. Atlanta United is in a really, really bad spot when it comes to trying to advance right now. It does not look like they're going to be able to advance. They, they're going to need multiple pieces of help. Um, and it's not anything that's going to be easy. I think they need to have Columbus lose tonight. They need some other teams to draw. It's one of those scenarios. You know when your team's like 8-7 and seven in week going into week 17 of the NFL and you need three teams to lose, one team to tie. It's like, dude, our playoff hopes are over. Atlanta United's hopes right now, they're over. They're done. They won't be advancing. Here's the thing. They now need to figure out what ails this team and how to make it work until Joseph Martinez comes back, which probably won't be this year. It sucks because Atlanta United for the past three seasons has been the group that all of us get really excited about because they've been really good. They've been the group that's continued to go out there and compete and obviously win MLS Cup a couple of seasons ago. They've competed at the highest level. They've been excited. They've had 70,000-plus people. I wonder now openly, and I know their fan base very well, and this is not a shot at them. I promise you this is not a shot at them. If this team tanks and does not play well for good portions of the rest of this year, what happens? Do you look and do you see uh, the fans? And I know there's not going to be as many fans, if any, at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Are you wondering now, will fans uh, start to turn on this group? This has been a really, really weird year because of everything that's happened coronavirus-wise. Just Do people step back and go, look, we're not very good. Let's stop going. Let's not risk health, even if the Mercedes-Benz Stadium's open or not. Do we do any of those things. Speaking of Mercedes-Benz Stadium, Falcon season ticket holders 
got letters today. Letters were sent out talking about the 2020 season. Here, And I'm just going to read some of the excerpts from there that give you an idea of what Falcons could be doing for their fan base. Credit for any funds already paid towards your 2020 season tickets will remain on the account to either purchase tickets to select 2020 home games, pay off PSL installments, or can be rolled over to cover costs associated with the purchase of 2021 season tickets. Should you choose to keep your season ticket credit on account and are current on your 2020 payment obligations, your 2021 season pricing will be flat based off your 2020 10-game plan, regardless of whether you attend any 2020 home games or not. Another point, if you're interested in pursuing an alternative solution such as a refund, please reach out to your service representative and we'll work with you directly for the best solution for you. Additionally, we will provide members who are paying their annual PSL installments an option to extend their PSL payment agreements by one year, deferring either their 2021 PSL agreement or 2020 PSL payment. Whether or not you elect to attend home games during the 2020 season, your contractual season ticket seat locations will be uh, protected for the 2021 season. So one of the things that came out from, from the NFL as we read through some of that, uh, there will be no fans in attendance for training camp. I'm going to tell you now, that sucks. Because one of the things I've loved to do throughout my years of working in media is, is actually be out there and get to meet the faces of people that I talk to via social media, that I've talked to via the radio, that we talk to via Tackler Media, whatever it may be. And now that opportunity is going to be gone. I know for a lot of fans... They love the ability of being able to go out and go to training camp. One, it's free or it's relatively inexpensive. Maybe you have to pay a couple of dollars to park your car if you can't find a parking spot up there at Flowery Branch. B, it's your chance to get as close to the players as you'll ever get. We all know what it's like at Flowery Branch. You walk around the fence, uh, you stand up there, you hope your favorite player come over, and that's his autograph day. Or you see them when they come out to the parking lot and they're on one of the various radio stations, whether it's 680 The Fan, Atlanta Sports X, 92.9 The Game, you name it. If ESPN's out there, whatever it may be, you get a chance to see them. You also get a chance to meet a lot of your favorite sports personalities who happen to be out there. Most of us, at least I can speak for myself, very accessible. I'll stop, take pictures, handshake, do all of that. Now that's out the window. There's also talk now that the Players Association is hardly, supremely pushing for the fact that there will not be preseason football in 2020. Now, I can tell you, again, as a guy that's traveled, preseason sucks for everybody that's on the roster or is, a, as, is basically an employee. The guys that are on the back end of the roster, preseason's huge. They're trying to do whatever the hell they can to make the football team. Most veterans could care less if we play football during the preseason. They just want to get on with the regular season. And as far as fans go, I've seen some stadiums announce that it'll be like a 20 to 25% capacity. There are other ones that have not announced what they're going to do yet if you're allowed to go to football games at all. That's obviously a huge question as we roll on uh, midway through the July mark is what's going to happen with football meetings coming up this week in the NFL. We'll see what the hell ends up happening there, but I have no idea. Speaking of football, we don't know if there's going to be college or pro football. We definitely don't know if there's going to be college. I know last week the Big Ten, uh, the Pac-12, potentially the ACC have all announced they're going to go to conference-only games. Now what the hell happens with the SEC? Greg Sankey came out earlier this week 
said simply, uh, football's up in the air. We don't know what's going to happen. They're going to leave it more up, I believe, to the local municipalities, uh, the data that's out there as far as where the coronavirus is, uh, the data that's out there with hospitalizations and ICU percentage and everything else like that. That's what they're going to continue to put out there. That's what may dictate if we end up having football. Now, I'm not a fear person. I know there's a lot of people that disagree with me. But if I see five kids test positive for coronavirus and they're asymptomatic and they're not sick, I get the long-term potential. I get passing it to coaches and grandmothers and this, that, and the other. And I'm not sensitive to that. I'm not at all. But when I see these reports and I see the Brett McMurphys and the Dan Walkins of the world running out, oh, there's eight guys tested positive. And then they never follow up two weeks later and say, oh, these kids are healthy and they're back to work. I have a problem with that. But for the University of Georgia, the problem we've all had over the last few years is that the offense has been, quite frankly, offensive. It hadn't been very good. It's been slow-paced. It's Jim Chaney, off-tackle right, off-tackle left. It was James Coley not knowing what the hell he was doing, and in steps Todd Munkin. Well, earlier this week, JT Daniels gets the permissive transfer where he is able to play right away. Now, I just so happen because I play college fantasy football, which is a ton of fun. I just so happened last year to be up late at night watching USC take on Fresno State when uh, JT Daniels got hurt. And the reason I was up late, I had Amon St. Brown as one of my wide receivers, and I wanted to see if he would get me enough to win the game. Well, when JT Daniels got hurt, things went downhill. He didn't get a chance to play in an up-tempo spread offense like they were hoping he was going to at USC. Keaton Slovis walked in, ended up being a star freshman, uh, basically freshman All-American and everything else, and Slovis made it where JT Daniels probably wasn't going to have a job moving forward. Daniels comes to Georgia, and I found this as an interesting transfer because Jamie Newman had already been uh, uh, you know, given the permissive transfer because he was a senior and a grad student and could leave was assumed to be the starter. There are recruits coming in in behind, but JT Daniels is a former five-star quarterback. Remember, he started as a true freshman at USC. Last year, he got to play one game as a true sophomore, so he'll come in here, I guess, as a redshirt sophomore, still with three years of eligibility to play. The kid can play. Don't get it twisted his one year at USC where he struggled a little bit as a freshman that he's not any good. JT Daniels can play. And I thought last year um, in the new offense that they were going to run there in Graham Harrell's offense, which is just up-tempo spread, throw it all over the yard. I thought JT Daniels was set up to have, you know, one of those 4,000-yard, 30-touchdown seasons. Will he start over Jamie Newman? I'll answer you right now. No, he will not. And it's not that he's not good enough to start. I think uh, Kirby Smart sees the writing on the wall. He allowed Justin Fields to leave, wrongly so. Um, You know, I I get it. Jake Fromm had just led him to a national title game. He led him back to the SEC championship game. You weren't going to bench him. I would not have benched him either. You didn't lose the championship games because uh, of Jake Fromm. You lost the championship games because Kirby Smart had brain farts throughout the whole thing. But Justin Fields left. The new age of college football is finding a guy who can run and can throw, and Jamie Newman can do all of those things. Go back and watch some of the videos of him playing at Wake Forest. Kid can play. I do think JT Daniels, though, and mind you, he's only going to be a year removed, like right at a year when the season, if the season gets underway, when we're supposed to have that happen. He's only going to be a year out. He's a guy that you almost allow to play the four games for the pseudo redshirt season, 
and see what he's all about. And then you figure out, hey, now we have a kid that'll be a junior in the system. You have kids that behind him will be freshmen or, or redshirt freshmen or even redshirt sophomores. And now you can space out your quarterback room the way that it's supposed to be. So I think JT Daniels being here is a great uh, great thing. I think JT Daniels having an opportunity to play and maybe not be the starter could be a great thing as well. And I think Georgia, you get out of the stone age of offense, you potentially get into the 2020s, and you start doing some things where you can win some football games that maybe in the past you would have lost. Because I think uh, Georgia is, and I've got my fingers like an eighth of an inch apart, that close to winning a national title. But the time is now. It's time to get over the hump if you're Kirby Smart. Last thing, Braves will get underway. Uh, Cole Hamels, I don't know what the hell he was doing during the time of the pandemic. I don't know if he just assumed that everything was going to be fine, but I am already dreading this investment. I'm already looking at Cole Hamels going, when is this dude going to be out there? And Brian Snitker said it throughout the week that, you know, he's not really throwing in the bullpen yet. Well, they start in a week. Kind of need Cole Hamels to be out there. So the impetus is now going to be, and Mike Soroka looks really good, and Max Fried looks really good. Mike fulton is going to have to be ready come day three. When he starts on the third game, he better have his butt ready to go out there and throw. You're going to have to start looking at Kyle Wright as potentially being in that mix. you got to figure out, can Sean Newcomb go back to being a starter? He was successful in spurts in the bullpen but wasn't great. It's a guy that you have to depend on. He's probably your number four right now with Kyle Wright being your number five. Not the biggest amount of confidence in four and five for the Braves, but I do like the fact that, you know, they they made one of those bold moves and they went out and signed Yasiel Puig. Puig! 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 Remember that? There didn't used to be a five-minute sports center block without a mention of Puig a few years back. The guy still has pop in his bat. The guy still has the ability to play some great baseball. And and I saw some things this week. He's going to be a locker room cancer. How do you know that? Like, How do you know this guy's going to be a locker room cancer? Do you think the Braves did not vet uh, Yasiel Puig? You think they just, ah, we're just going to sign him for the hell of it. Think about it a year ago, 267, 24 homers, 84 RBIs, 19 stolen bases, and 555 at bats over his career he's a career 277 guy 132 rbi or 132 homers 415 rbis he's had some monster seasons now he's he's basically a mid-20s home run hitter in his best years it's the type of guy that you want to plug in somewhere and now with the outfield you're going to have uh maybe a little bit more uh, of a log jam out there think about it marcelo zuna's there adam duvall's there ender Inciarte's there ronald acuna's there now you throw out yasiel puig so you know you have versatility. Acuna can play right field. He can play left field. He can play center field. Enciarte is going to be your center fielder if he's ready to go. Duvall, Ozuna can both play left, can both DH. You've got options, and you can throw Austin Riley and Charlie Culberson if you really, really need to. But I think having a guy like Puig, especially in a shortened season, there are going to be days that you got to do Johnny Holstaff where it's Kyle Wright and it's Tukey Tucson and it's Will Smith and, you know, it's Johnny Venters or you name it. You know, start throwing guys, uh, whoever you can to get out there. And those are days you're going to need to go out and put up some runs. What, what are people mad about about bringing Yasiel Puig in? I'm not mad at all. Let the dude go out there and, and, and try to mash a few home runs for you, steal a couple of bases, I got a feeling in this locker room 
with the Latin players that are there, I don't think we're going to have the problems that everybody says with Yasiel Puig. All I know is I'm ready for some baseball to get underway. We'll be back over the weekend. Until then, tacklermedia.com. Follow us on social media at Tackler Media. Shout out to Wes and Jason and Jamal working their butts off. Thank you guys for listening. Tell a friend to tell a friend. Until then, see you.